Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Dan Gottlieb and Dr. Doug Kirsch to the show. Dr. Gottlieb is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Associate Physician in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is also Director of the Sleep Disorder Center at the VA Boston Healthcare System. Dr. Kirsch is a Medical Director of Sleep Medicine and Professor of Internal Medicine and Neurology at Atrium Health. He's also a clinical professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina and past president of the AASM. Both are members of the Sleep Research Society Task Force that recently published Metrics of Sleep Apnea Severity Beyond the AHI. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. So we've been debating the AHI as a primary metric for diagnosing obstructive sleep apnea for years. I know, Doug, we had a conversation probably five years ago about this. And so I really appreciate that this research statement explores the strengths and weaknesses of the AHI, but also considers the possibility of new metrics to better quantify the severity of obstructive sleep apnea. So tell me what was involved in creating this paper and why did the SRS want to do this? I think the SRS, like many of us, is recognizes that the AHI has been the predominant metric for measurement of sleep apnea over the last several decades, um, and yet it still has many challenges. And so as they look forward to the next stages of how we assess sleep apnea and really the research that's going to be done in sleep apnea and guide that uh, into the future, uh, there needed to be looked at where the AHI has some hopes and and where it has some failures and where maybe some new metrics may move us down the road in the future to make uh, both research and, and clinical diagnosis of sleep apnea a better um, uh, a better metric for us. Is that your thought as well, Dan? I think there's been a lot of negative uh, press that the apneic hypopnea index has received, and that's uh, in part. Uh, reflects that we haven't had a consistent definition of the apnea hypopnea index. It's changed quite a bit over the years. And also that uh, it doesn't uh, correlate uh, very well with some of the outcomes that we're interested in. And so there's a recognition that there may be better ways of measuring the severity of sleep apnea. And this is an attempt to look at the AHI, where it does well, where it doesn't do well, and to identify ways that we might uh, uh, better measure the severity of sleep apnea. So even though the AHI is flawed, um, it sounds like it's still better than anything else we've come up with. So tell me about how we started using the AHI to begin with. Well, I think that it was recognized uh, probably back in antiquity, but certainly, uh, you know, within the last hundred years, at least, uh, that um, uh, people who snored and stopped breathing at night uh, tended to be overly sleepy during the day and had other uh, clinical manifestations of that. Um, it's been um, about 50 years since the first polysomnographic measures of sleep apnea. Uh, and um, it was um, uh, because of the breathing pauses were clearly a part of the, uh, um, the, the syndrome, uh, it seemed natural to count them. Uh, and it was something that was, uh, was relatively straightforward to do. Um, and uh, uh, over time, we've continued uh, to, to 
uh, monitor sleep in largely the same way that, uh, that we did 50 years ago. Um, uh, with somewhat different sensors, but um, but uh, by and large looking at the same signals and have continued with that, uh, that same approach. So why is it five? Well, that is, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so the, the um, you know, that's a matter of convenience, actually. I think that the initial people looking at, uh, at uh, um, sleep apnea saw that most people had less than that, and they picked a number, you know, it's a nice round number. And I think the numbers that we use, uh, thresholds of five, 15, 30 per hour, uh, are, uh, are uh, you know, chosen by expert consensus, not based on their particular association with outcomes that we might be interested in, such as sleepiness or high blood pressure. Uh, and um, I think that one of the problems we've seen with the AHI is that um, uh, the way that we, um, the way that we, uh, well, let me go back to say, I think that um, it, it may be that there is no threshold. I mean, we, we choose uh, these thresholds, uh, but it may be that, like with blood pressure, um, there's no, uh, you know, there's no uh, lower limit below which reducing the AHI is uh, uh, is healthy. Um, that said, um, uh, there are also problems that we have uh, had widely divergent uh, or wi very different measures of sleep of um, the AHI that give us very different uh, very different values and these thresholds have remained um, have remained invariant despite changes in the definition of uh, hypopnea so uh, that, that's been a problem I think for the AHI. What about you Doug? That, well I was gonna say I think that there's a couple things to highlight that I learned in in writing this paper I mean the first thing to recognize is that the polysomnogram wasn't innately designed to measure sleep apnea, right? It was to measure and look at sleep. And it was a sidelight that over time, respiratory assessment was added to the, to the process of looking at sleep. Um, and then you start to think about, well, why were certain things chosen? Well, it wasn't originally five events per hour. It was actually the fact that there were 30 apneas over the course of the night was kind of the determined, right. uh, you know, abnormal quotient. And so you divide that by some amount of hours and you suddenly get closer to that five number. But again, it was sort of a selection of a uh, a number that seemed atypical or abnormal more so than a clear division based on um, lots of research data. And then when you look at the 4% desaturation, that was related to the fact it was easy to see, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, if you think back, we're all used to kind of a digital world, but the the fact that you can on a piece of paper have to track what what a four percent looks like without printed numbers and all those things you have to be able to see it and so there are some of these things that we've taken as gospel and truth that were really determined based on necessity and some amount of hand waving actually inconvenience right right yeah, absolutely. So, so what does the AHI do well, and then where do you think it falls short? So uh, I will say that um, we all recognize in seeing patients in, in clinic every day that the AHI can be a very useful way of giving people a sense of how bad their disorder is. Um, but as Dan mentioned earlier, the, the severity based on that numeric HI doesn't always correlate with all the things that we think of. And so things that the AHI 
seems to correlate pretty well with are things like quality of life and hypertension and, and risk for stroke. It doesn't seem to correlate as well with coronary artery disease um, and, um, and sleepiness, because we've all had patients where the AHI is incredibly high, but patients say, well, I'm not sleepy, or at least don't recognize that they're sleepy. Um, and the challenges come, uh, I think, in part that my AHI in my laboratory may be different than the AHI SEMA in your laboratory or in Dan's laboratory. And, and that's not a good thing, right? Because there are some the differences in how the same patient may look. Um, and that it's not a static number, right? That there's such variance in that AHI based on that night of study. Was it a split night study? Was it a full night study? Was it a night where they spent most of the night on their side or on their back? Um, and, and I think that that gets to some of the challenges of AHI, right? When you see a patient today and you say, well, your AHI on your back was 60, your AHI on your side was 10. We gave you an overall AHI for the night of 25, but is that really moderate apnea? Right. What if they spent 30 minutes on their more on their back? Would it be, would you treat them differently, right? And I think that that gets to some of the challenges we see with AHI. Yeah, I think that, that um, when you talk about the shortcomings of the AHI, I think you have to think about the, the different uh, reasons for that. And one is, uh, you know, one question is how precise is the measure? How well does it capture the actual exposure that we're interested in? And uh, as Doug mentioned, night-to-night variation will affect that. Um, scoring inaccuracy, just difference in how we score from one lab to another or how the sensors are sitting on a person's face. Um, uh, and the other is, you know, the physiologic part. How well does the AHI capture the relevant underlying physiology, uh, which may have to do with hypoxemia, it may have to do with arousal, uh, and those things don't directly go into the AHI. Uh, beyond those estimates of, beyond, beyond the question of how precisely the AHI um, uh, uh, measures sleep apnea, we have to consider their individual differences in the response to the same stim- physiologic stimulus. And uh, so, uh, as Doug mentioned, there are people who may have very severe sleep apnea as measured by the AHI who don't have any symptoms from that. And there are others with very mild uh, uh, sleep apnea based on the AHI who are profoundly symptomatic. And I think that uh, the AHI doesn't take those symptoms into account. But when we're treating a patient, those symptoms are critical because at this point, really, symptoms are still the reason that we're treating patients with sleep apnea. Uh, and, so, uh, and so I think that uh, one of the problems we've gotten into with the AHI, and part of the reason we've had these changing definitions, 4% uh, desaturation versus 3% desaturation or arousal, is, uh, is a really sort of a sensitivity and specificity issue that uh, the, the more stringent you make your criteria, the fewer people you'll identify with the disorder. Uh, and consequently, you'll have people who are really affected, but who we don't have, we're not able to treat because they don't meet a certain diagnostic threshold. On the other hand, when you choose a very liberal uh, definition for hypopneas, now you identify everybody as having sleep apnea so that uh, you lose some credibility when you say that, well, 70% of adult men have obstructive sleep apnea. And I think that that's one of the problems that we're trying to deal with in identifying a better metric in the AHI. Well, and so you've kind of hinted at this, right? Is the AHI that we're measuring today the same as the AHI we measured 
20 years ago, right? Like now we have digital technology and now we can see these things we weren't seeing before. So then, I mean, should the cutoffs be different? Well, I think that that um, the, the short answer is, is yes. Um, if we have cutoffs at all, at all, I think it's not so much they need to be different, but they need to be calibrated to uh, to how we identify the events. Um, and and so, if you're going to use a four percent desaturation, you can't consider a number fifteen to mean the same thing as if you're using a three percent desaturation. But uh, but it may be not so much choosing the right threshold, but adjusting how we think about using the AHI. That it's it's one measure that has to be considered in the context of other measures, including patient symptoms. Dan is very much correct in saying that um, you know we we've sucked with these very firm measures in part because we are forced to clinically right that um, we are given rules by insurance companies about how we manage patients and who we can treat and who we can't treat. And that has been built off of the data that has been produced over years of research, sleep heart health study, Wisconsin sleep cohort. Um, but the challenge is um, that we haven't moved much further past that. And I think to Dan's point, the variability in AHI between locations, between people, who's symptomatic, who's not symptomatic, I, I think the AHI is, has been given the sole um, uh, the, the measure of, of truth when it comes to sleep apnea, but it's, it's one of many probably measures of truth, uh, including also, you know, how deep does the desaturations go or how long is the desaturations occurring for, or how long are the respiratory events? Is one long apnea the same as three short apneas, you know, that will lead to a very different AHI. And so I think this gets to that sort of the heart of this document, which is to say, the AHI is important, and it has really moved the field of sleep apnea research and clinical care uh, a long way, but it's not the end, or it probably shouldn't be viewed as the end based on the fact that we have different technology and different ways of potentially assessing it as we move forward. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about metrics that can get us beyond the AHI. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Register today for Virtual Sleep 2021. Attend lectures from leading sleep researchers and clinicians, browse the exhibit hall, and view the latest research in the poster hall. The sleep meeting is a must attend for anyone in the field of sleep medicine and sleep and circadian research. Learn more at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking to Dr. Dan Gottlieb and Dr. Doug Kirsch about a new research statement from the SRS about the need to explore alternatives to the AHI. So tell me about some of these alternatives. I mean, I don't hear you say that we need to burn it down to the ground and not use the AHI anymore, but tell me a little bit more about some of these metrics that you explored, like hypoxic burden and arousal intensity. So I think that these uh, metrics, and I want to point out the metrics that are uh, explored in this paper are, uh, you know, are a smattering of things, um, 
and none of which has been clearly demonstrated to outperform the AHI, although there's suggestion that some of them may be better at predicting certain outcomes than, uh, than the AHI does. And I think that it's important uh, as we go forward to validate these uh, in multiple populations and really um, demonstrate the generalizability of what's been published in, in most cases in, in a few, uh, uh, you know, one or a few um, publications. But I think that these measures fall into a, a couple of different areas. Um, some get at uh, differences in the physiology, for instance, event duration or the, the depth or pattern of hypoxemia. Uh, and others get at the individual response to these physiologic stimuli. So for instance, the arousal intensity or heart rate response uh, to, a, um, uh, to an event. And both of those things are, uh, are probably important. And we know that there's a great deal of individual variability in responsiveness. And in the end, that may be the most important thing to, uh, to be able to identify how an individual responds to, uh, to, a particular, uh, to, to a particular severity of sleep apnea as uh, identified by the AHI. So, um, and I think that sleepiness is one thing that as clinicians we use, that, which is essentially a measure of how the, part, the patient is responding to their sleep apnea. And hopefully, some of the measures such as um, the, uh, the degree to which heart rate increases following an event will help us to understand which individuals may be at risk for uh, cardiovascular as opposed to the, the symptomatic uh, consequences of sleep apnea. But Dan, don't, don't you think also, I mean, as we talk about sleepiness, for instance, part of the problem also occurs with patients' ability to identify sleepiness sometimes, meaning mm -hmm. there are some patients who will come in and tell you, hey, I'm not, I'm not very sleepy, and you treat them, they're like, oh, I feel so much better, <laughs> and <laughs> that, that there is the qualitative aspects of, hey, am I sleepy or not sleepy? And then there's also the quantitative, right, because we don't often these days test people for sleepiness uh, because the assumption is that people who have sleep apnea, they tell you they're sleepy. We don't need to test them to, to show that. The people who say they aren't sleepy, we take them at their word, but we don't actually know that they're not sleepy uh, other than maybe by an Epworth or something similar to that. And and I'm, I feel sometimes that we, uh, you know, when the research has shown, for instance, that sleepiness is an important piece of it, it's, it's, it's sleepiness is determined by a questionnaire typically mm -hmm. more than anything. So I think it's true there are those patients who indicate that they're not sleepy, uh, and yet I also think there are many patients who really are not sleepy. Uh, you know, in the sleep heart health study, whenever we had someone with an AHI over 50, uh, we called them to talk to them about it. And I think I'm a decent clinician, uh, and yet uh, many of those patients, either they knew they had sleep apnea um, uh, or um, they, you know, I couldn't drag a symptom out of them. And certainly there are patients with sleep apnea who say they're not symptomatic and you treat them and they feel worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I do believe that, uh, that um, the, the symptom does mean something. And as you point out, even though it's questionnaire, those, uh, those, question, those symptomatic responses do predict outcomes. Um, so so I, 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 I'm not willing to, to uh, um, to say that we're going to find a physiologic signal that will replace that self-report. And yet I do think that uh, it would be uh, that there are those people who uh, say they're not symptomatic and you treat them, they feel better. Uh, and uh, 
sometimes an empiric trial of treatment may be reasonable. Uh, it would be nice to be able to find a physiologic signal, and maybe there's something in the EEG, for instance, that would that would do this, that would help us to uh, uh, understand among people uh, uh, to understand who really is uh, is going to be symptomatic and who might feel better when they're treated. So some of these measures, I think uh, one that we measured was um, uh, something called the odds ratio product, which is looking at how uh, how well the two hemispheres of the brain communicate with one another that seems to be impaired by sleep deprivation or sleep apnea. And maybe there are signals like that that will help us to understand who among those patients who say they're not sleepy are actually uh, going to be at risk of things like motor vehicle accidents who might feel better when we treat them. So we spent a lot of time over the years talking about the need to better phenotype obstructive sleep apnea. So tell me about what this means. You know, explain to me the difference between the phenotype um, and genotyping our patients. Well, genotype is pretty straightforward. It's, you know, it's uh, uh, sort of the, the sum of the different uh, genetic variants in our, in our DNA. Um, phenotype refers to the expression of those genetic differences. Um, and, uh, uh, and so when we talk about phenotyping sleep apnea, what we're really talking about uh, is looking at the, the different ways in which sleep apnea is expressed. Um, and that uh, may include um, physiologic things such as uh, heart rate responses, or uh, it may include things such as duration of events or depth of desaturation. And it can also include um, uh, uh, symptomatic responses, um, uh, hypertension. So, uh, so, we, we can try and identify, uh, you know, clusters of those things that seem distinct in one group of sleep apnea patients from another and consider that a phenotype or a subtype uh, of sleep apnea. Whether or not those subtypes reflect the underlying differences in, uh, in genotype um, is something that uh, is currently uh, just really in its infancy uh, to, to, you know, starting to be explored, but really in its infancy at this point. Doug, what are your thoughts? I, I mean, I think that the concept of phenotype is really um, a recognition that individuals are going to respond differently to the same thing. And, and we've seen this through other areas of medicine as well. So you give two people the same antidepressant, for instance, and one will respond well and one won't. Why is that, right? And, and so I think as we enter a world in which there is more data available to us, it gives us a better chance to group people who are likely to be at higher risk for heart disease who have sleep apnea or who are likely to respond to a different treatment, right? We talk about this sometimes in the context of who's a good oral appliance candidate, right? Mm -hmm. That certain patients you might look at and say, okay, you know, they are retronathic and, you know, they have relatively mild sleep apnea, that would be a good characteristic for a oral appliance versus the person who has very severe apnea. But we know that some people with very severe apnea also respond well to oral appliances, mm -hmm. but we can't always predict who. And so it is this idea that we can predict better um, or group people in a way to allow that prediction to occur better. And I think the genotype 
will hopefully ultimately help with that. So for instance, uh, if we can identify uh, a genetic background on which sleep apnea is likely to lead to stroke, that might identify a group of patients in whom we should be aggressively trying to treat them regardless of symptoms. Um, whereas uh, if we could identify a genetic background in which uh, we don't see excess cardiovascular risk from sleep apnea, then we can focus simply on their, their symptomatic response. So, you know, we had an episode recently on artificial intelligence, and we kind of talked about how polysomnography really hasn't changed very much over the last 20 years, but technology has exploded. So why do you think the PSG hasn't changed? And do you think that this debate about the HI and advancements in technology could maybe help us do something more or better or different with our polysomnography? I mean, I think we've learned um, over the years how to measure sleep apnea by AHI pretty well. Um, and I think what you saw was early in the phase of sleep laboratories, a, a huge growth in sleep laboratories and, and um, sleep clinical care because A, there was a large demand, but also the reimbursement was good for such a thing. And I think that that gr massive growth in clinical care has kind of led to um, obviously changes based on insurance uh, and prior authorizations and those types of things. And what it hasn't done is it hasn't pushed us to do things differently. Um, and yet now with home sleep apnea testing and consumer devices to measure sleep apnea, I think we have left a lot of um, data on the table when it comes mm -hmm. to polysonography, right? That we have used it as solely a tool to measure an AHI. And what we're learning is you can do that reasonably well with a home sleep apnea test. Um, and probably at some point, with consumer testing of some kind. I think that the, the challenge for the sleep field really going forward is what other data should we be getting out of having somebody spend eight hours of their night in a sleep laboratory with a lot of wires on? And, um, and as it gets to some of the things that Dan started to talk about, right? We have spectral analysis and EEG and we have heart rate and, um, and probably could do a lot more than we are doing now, but we haven't been pushed to do more until now because all people wanted to know was what's the AHI. Right. And I think now we are at a phase where it's, okay, the AHI can be replicated elsewhere, but what is it that's specific about being in a laboratory that we can learn about a patient's physiology uh, and biology to help guide a sort of diagnosis or a treatment mechanism for that patient, um, given that they're investing their time and money in that sleep study? I think it's important that, um, that we do this soon, because I do think there's uh, a bit of a race between, uh, um, between expanding that knowledge from the really extensive data that we obtained from PSG uh, and the financial and convenience imperatives to use uh, wearables and, and home diagnostics. Um, uh, and uh, fortunately, I think we're going to be able to learn a lot from data that have already been collected. Um, uh, 
because the, the things that we can learn from PSG, which we may not be able to do easily in the home now, we probably could do uh, without great difficulty in the home if there were added benefit to gain from it. Uh, and, uh, and I expect that there is. Um, but, um, um, but it's something that we really need to demonstrate uh, uh, before we're left with, uh, with only the very simple measurements that, that we currently make in the home. So is that how you see that this will change our diagnostic approach, that we will be able to bring these tools into the home in a more efficient manner? Well, I hope that we're able to do that. Uh, I think that our diagnostic approach is likely uh, to some extent going to be uh, driven by uh, the, the changes in technology. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to get the most useful technology into the home. But I also think it's relevant to say that, you know, we know that clinical care is often guided by research. And, you know, some of this, I think, paper is is a push to say, hey, you know, here's all this data we're getting out of these PSGs. How can we use that data to guide clinical care? Because the clinicians, you know, who have invested, um, you know, time and and, and money into forming these soup labs, obviously are somewhat worried about that future in which everything is done in the home. Um, and I think that while some of some work certainly should and can be done in the home, there may still be a place for laboratory-based work, um, but it, it needs to have enough research behind it to say, hey, this is why you need to do it here. Or if it's advanced home-based polysomnography, you know, what is it we're getting out of doing that extra work in the home that people can put on a cap and a blood pressure monitor and their respiratory effort sensors and say, you know, we're going to get more out of this um, to that it that that it will help guide your care more than just saying, hey, your AHI was 14. I think that's absolutely right. And uh, and I think that um, regardless of where the, the test is done, what we really need to understand now is uh, what is the information that we can get from th these signals that we are able to collect. So tell me final thoughts, Dan. Well, I think that uh, uh, my final thoughts would be that it's not time to throw the AHI on, under the bus just yet. I think <laughs> that it has given us a lot of useful, useful information over the years. It does correlate uh, with sleepiness in the general population, as well as with uh, risk of, of multiple uh, uh, adverse health outcomes. Uh, and I expect it will continue to do that for some time. And what we really need is to understand uh, how to better refine uh, that measure and associated measures uh, to, uh, uh, to best uh, determine the risk that individuals have and to best determine uh, how they should be treated. I, I agree, Dan. I mean, I think that we, we recognize AHI is a useful number, but like a lot of studies we get in, in medical care, it shouldn't be the only number. And, and if you got a report that said, hey, you know, your AHI was six, but your uh, arousal intensity was 14 and your, um, your uh, hypoxic burden time under 90 was... 52 minutes, like, you know, using that nuanced data, I think really could provide a better 
sense of to the patient and to the field of medicine, right, of how bad this problem is for that patient, right? When you get a patient referred to you who's got AFib and they have, you know, some mild sleep apnea based on a AHI, maybe that's not the complete answer. And, and maybe really to try and understand these relationships, we need to go past where we are. It doesn't mean we have to leave behind the, the thing that has been sort of a core tenant of our field for the last 50 years, but I think it's recognizing that it can't be the only thing that we get people treated based on, uh, that there is, in fact, a lot more to sleep apnea than an AHI alone. So it sounds like this paper really is setting the stage to at least explore other metrics that we should consider in the diagnosis and, and really treatment then of obstructive sleep apnea or the decision to treat. Uh, and so this may ultimately impact the way future generations of sleep clinicians think about sleep apnea and our current diagnostic criteria. I'd like to thank both of you for spending time with us today. I appreciate the time, Seema. Yes, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.